0: Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. One of the greatest Jewish philosophers of his or any age, Moses Mendelssohn, is widely considered to have played a decisive role in bridging the ontological and epistemological gap between traditional Judaism and the philosophical rationalism. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. One of the greatest Jewish philosophers of his or any age, Moses Mendelssohn is widely considered to have played a decisive role in bridging the ontological and epistemological gap between traditional Judaism and the philosophical rationalism of the early modern era. Nonetheless, Mendelssohn's work has received widely varying treatments and interpretations by Mendelssohn scholars. Elias Sachs, assistant professor of Jewish studies and religious studies, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, has written a book that brings needed clarity to Mendelssohn's scholarship. In the book, Moses Mendelssohn's Living Script, Philosophy, Practice, History, Judaism, published this year by Indiana University Press, Professor Sachs explores Mendelssohn's writings in both German and Hebrew, shedding new light on Mendelssohn's philosophical approach to the challenges posed to Jewish practice by emerging historical consciousness, and by late Enlightenment philosophy. Professor Sachs pays detailed attention to both Mendelssohn's historical context and the influence on his work of Christian theology and emerging scientific models of thought. The result is a deeper and more nuanced understanding of Mendelssohn's thought. Professor Sachs joins me today to discuss his book.
1: Professor Sachs, welcome. Thanks so much, David. It's a a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank
0: you. So tell us, if you would, how you became... Interested in
1: Mendelssohn's work and in what you call and what he calls his living script So I think um, I think what first attracted me to Mendelssohn was a kind of striking juxtaposition um, so on the one hand Mendelssohn is about as canonical a figure as we get in modern Jewish thought um, He's a leading figure in the late enlightenment a leading uh, theorist of aesthetics of metaphysics um, uh, But he's also the founder of modern Jewish thought, the kind of first figure to give a kind of philosophical defense of Judaism's relevance and modernity. So in many ways, he's a deeply known figure. He's familiar to all of us. He's in every survey of Jewish thought, survey of Jewish history, survey of Enlightenment philosophy. There are kind of famous stories about him that are told in all sorts of texts. He beats Mm -hmm. Immanuel Kant in essay contests. He famously... um, dies because he falls ill after going out on a winter night to get a manuscript-defending reason to his publisher. Uh, so on the one hand, he's this deeply known figure. Um, on the other hand, um, it became clear to me um, sort of early on that he's also a figure in many ways shrouded in obscurity. If we actually look at the content of his philosophy, we find layers and layers of uncertainty and neglect. Um, we find this when it comes to the content of his arguments. Many of his claims have gone unexplicated, um, and some scholars have basically given up hope on reconstructing the details of his arguments. Um, we find this also when it comes to his writings. Um, as you mentioned, he writes in both German and Hebrew. The German texts are widely read. The Hebrew material has largely been neglected, especially in North America. Uh, we find this when it comes to the basic character of his thought. There are debates about whether he's a kind of Jewish tradition, traditionalist or a sort of covert deist, Uh, we find this about his contemporary relevance. Um, It's deeply contested whether Mendelssohn has much, if anything, to offer us today. And I found this kind of contrast to be startling, right? How could this figure both be canonical and familiar to all of us and in many ways deeply unknown and enduringly obscure? Huh. So interesting. And then, um, you know, as you have mentioned and as you
0: outline in the book, there's been considerable uh, and and quite a bit of high-quality scholarship on Mendelssohn's thought, especially his thought in German. But you take some different approaches, not only by reading his Hebrew texts, but by developing different kinds of methodologies for helping us understand
1: and synthesize his work. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So. Um when I found myself kind of confronted with obscurity um, surrounding Mendelssohn, um, I decided to focus in on what in many ways is one of the most contested elements of his thought, and that's his theory of Jewish practice. This is one of the kind of classic kind of loci of claims that are unclear, arguments where we have reason to think that Mendelssohn may not I've actually worked out the details of his claims for himself, um, and I decided to take up that as a main area of study. And so the book is in many ways a study of Mendelssohn's theory of Jewish practice. Um, and there are, I guess, two sorts of moves I make to try to bring some clarity or kind of generate. A theory about what Mendelssohn might be up to in these texts. And part of it um, is something to which you've already alluded, Um, I try to integrate his German and Hebrew writings. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I do in the book is I often begin with a German text um, and then use that as a springboard for turning back to the Hebrew writings, asking whether the issues that are raised in that German text um, get more worked out, um, receive a more extensive treatment in in his Hebrew material. And I found that that's often the case. One example is his theory of Jewish politics. Mendelssohn, in one of his most famous German works, a a book called Jerusalem that he wrote in 1783, again and again offers these cryptic references to the idea that Jewish practice and Jewish life promote what he calls the felicity of the state or the felicity of the nation, that somehow adherence to Jewish law helps the well-being of the state. Um, But he never... Says what he means, and most scholars who talk about these lines basically accept that he doesn't have a fully worked-out theory. But well, what I try to do is actually look at some of his Hebrew writings, in particular a Hebrew commentary on the Torah that he publishes in the early 1780s. Um, and I argue that if we actually look at some of those German, uh, some of those Hebrew texts rather, um, we actually see worked out the details of the arguments to which he only alludes in the German writings. Um, so that's one kind of move I make. Mm-hmm. So, Um,
0: you know, it's interesting that you say this because the impression that some scholars have given in their work is that, uh, as you mentioned, his his arguments may be opaque or not fully worked out. How How much do you ascribe this to the fact that he is speaking to multiple audiences and under the considerable pressure of being aware that he is already a singular historical figure?
1: So I think that's absolutely one of the key factors. Mendelssohn is deeply aware of the different audiences... Um, to which he's speaking and the different perils he confronts when speaking to those audiences. So let me again use the example um, that I just offered, this example of a kind of theory of Jewish politics, the theory of Mm -hmm. how Jewish law promotes the well-being of the states. Um, When Mendelssohn is writing in German, he's largely writing for a non-Jewish audience. And when it comes to talking about questions about Jewish politics to a non-Jewish German audience in the 1780s, Mendelssohn has to walk a very tight line. On the one hand, he has to, or at least he wants to give the impression that Judaism is Politically useful. There's a significant debate going on in the 1780s in German-speaking states about whether Jews should be given what today we would call civic rights. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly, and Mendelssohn is, is involved in these debates. And certainly, to make the case that Jews should receive these rights, he has to make the case that Jews can be good citizens. So he wants to allude again and again to the idea that Judaism is somehow at least politically neutral and maybe even politically beneficial. At the same time, he can't go into such detail that he runs the risk of giving the impression that there's a distinctive Jewish approach to politics. Somehow there's a uniquely Jewish way of being a citizen because to his non-Jewish readers at that moment, that's going to sound as if Jews are too different. It's going to, one of the worries about kind of Jewish citizenship, is whether Jews are just too different to be integrated into a state with Mm non-Jews. And so Mendelssohn has to allude to the idea when writing in German that Jews can be good citizens, but at least I argue he can't really go into great detail because then he's going to undermine his case. He's going to give the impression that there's a distinctive Jewish politics. Um, So that's what goes on in the German writings. He's Mm got to write in this kind of elusive and opaque manner um, for his audience. Conversely, when he's writing about an issue like Jewish politics in his Hebrew texts, he has a very different audience in mind. Um, Mendelssohn's Hebrew is, not an is at least in many cases, not an easy Hebrew. It's written in a kind of blend of medieval, exegetical, and philosophical Hebrew that would have been largely accessible to a kind of Jewish intellectual elite. Um, uh, and when writing to that group, Mendelssohn um, doesn't have to make the case that Jews can be good citizens. Mendelssohn has to make the case that Jews should want to be good citizens. He's trying, I think, to sell some of his more traditionalist contemporaries on the idea that Jewish politics and Jewish citizenship and Jewish involvement in a non-Jewish state matter. So when it comes to uh, Hebrew text, he actually is going to go into much more detail because he has a different kind of agenda. I think that's part of what's going on um, Um, in, in generating this I think often frustrating style in which Mendelssohn writes.
0: Right. And, and it appears that um, uh, from your work that at least in Hebrew, but also to a certain extent in German, he has he is balancing sometimes dialectically opposed concerns, for example, the desire to endorse and encourage a continuance of. Jewish practice. And you say in your introduction that he develops a series of arguments about philosophical change, engaged citizenship, and religious authority that have so far uh, gone unrecognized, and that his conception of Jewish practice is largely shaped by a concern with history. So it seems as if he is concerned with both history and tradition. And how has your work helped uh, Help you reflect on sort of the the pressures and the sort of dialectical tension between those two forces
1: so let me maybe first say something about what I take Mendelssohn to be arguing. I think you 're exactly right. It has everything to do with these questions about history. Mm-hmm. Now let me say something more about the uh, kind of set what I took to be the second part of your question about the kind of broader implications for how we think about these categories. Um, let me first pick up on, on on the kind of claims I ascribe to Mendelssohn. Um, so when we integrate the German and Hebrew material, and when we also read Mendelssohn in light of many developments in his intellectual context, and you alluded to some of this in your introduction. I, I spend a lot of time with Mendelssohn's engagement with Christian theology, with debates in early modern natural science. Um, when we do that, um, at least I argue, what we discover is that um, Mendelssohn is in many ways uh, a philosopher of history, that if mm-hmm. we look at his theory of Jewish practice, really if we look at his philosophy more generally... Um, One of his central concerns is to address what he sees as both challenges and some opportunities associated with historical change and historical knowledge. Um, and this is not the standard picture of Mendelssohn. For mm-hmm. quite a while, the standard pi- picture of Mendelssohn was of a thinker largely uninterested in history. Um, and, and in many ways, this has to do with the language Mendelssohn uses. He talks again and again about eternal truths, which sounds like he's rejecting the idea that there are changing ideas throughout history. He has a famous letter that he writes to a friend where he um, says that he yaw- whenever he reads something historical. And I think, understandably, um, Mendelssohn talking about things like timeless truths and Mendelssohn saying things like, hey, I'm not that interested in historical works led lots of people to conclude, oh, Mendelssohn isn't deeply interested in history. Um, I actually think that's not the case. I actually think that if we look at the kinds of Mendelssohnian claims that have challenged interpreters over time, what we find again and again is a kind of deep preoccupation with both historical knowledge and historical change. And this is really one of the central unifying themes of his writings. Um, uh, On some level, he's interested, as you suggested, in defending um, Jewish practice and in, in making the case for the binding nature of Jewish practice, despite challenges posed by historical knowledge, in particular by the emergence of what today we call biblical criticism. Um, Mm -hmm. But even more fundamentally, I think Mendelssohn tries to make the case that Jewish practice um, serves as a kind of safeguard Um, in the face of dangers that historical processes pose for both individuals and societies. Uh, For Mendelssohn, we live in a world of unceasing historical change, unceasing historical flux, and Judaism is valuable because it allows us to navigate that kind of world. Uh, Mendelssohnian Judaism, for example, allows adherents to reimagine religious commitments as scientific changes and philosophical changes generate new models of reality. Uh, Mendelssohnian Judaism allows adherence to kind of direct societal change um, in ways that promote civic harmony and human perfection, rather than in ways that promote kind of corruption and civic strife. Mendelssohn argues that Judaism can kind of protect adherence from some of the social fragmentation that emerges from modern economic practices and modern study habits. Um, And so again and again, I think what we find is that Mendelssohn is deeply interested in history, right? He thinks that historical change is inevitable and that what Judaism does is kind of allow us to come to grips with it. Instead of kind of standing atop history and trying to kind of stop transformations, Judaism is going to allow adherents to kind of engage development productively, to rethink religious beliefs, to redirect societal change. So, Which is
0: interesting because... Uh, as you mentioned in your book, you, you, you talk briefly about um, Josef Heimur Shalmi's view that Jews really did not develop historical consciousness until the Wissenschaft movement. Of course, almost Funkenstein disagrees. He, he says that Jews had historical consciousness, and it would seem that your scholarship agrees more with Funkenstein than with, with your Shalmi.
1: I I think I think so. Or maybe one way to think about it is um, is I try to kind of navigate a a path between those two between those two perspectives. And this is one of the broader implications um, that I think emerges from my book. You know, one way I I sometimes describe the book is that it makes a claim about how we should read Mendelssohn and about why we should read Mendelssohn. And Uh what I've just talked about is the how piece, right, what we actually Mm -hmm. should take Mendelssohn to be up to. Um, The why piece is um, the kind of broader implications Of this reading, and one of these implications um, has to do with exactly the issue you just um, mentioned—the question of how we tell stories about the emergence of Jewish historical consciousness and the emergence of Jewish modernity. One of the stories you see in lots of um, kind of different works of scholarship is that one of the defining features of modern. Judaism, um, is, at least in, in Europe or at least in parts of Europe, is the emergence of a kind of historical consciousness, which refers both to kind of historical critical scholarship and to a broader outlook on history, an emphasis on historical change, the connections between Jewish and non-Jewish history, all sorts of things like that. Um, and for a while, the kind of standard picture was um, was associated with Yushalmi, and, and on that picture, um, kind of this kind of historical consciousness is, is as you said, a 19th century development. It emerges with the Wissenschaft, with the founders of what we might call the kind of academic study of Judaism. In recent years, there's been a move by, by some scholars, uh, Shmuel Feiner in particular, to push that back a little, or order to say some of the kind of um, uh, figures after Mendelssohn in the Haskalah, in the Jewish Enlightenment, already show the beginnings of, of signs of this historical consciousness. And part of what I want to do is push this back earlier. I want to suggest that no, 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 it's not a this historical consciousness isn't a post Mendelsonian development. It's in many ways a Mendelsonian development. Mm-hmm. Mendelssohn doesn't want to go in the direction of historical critical scholarship. He I think in many ways rejects what today we would call mm-hmm. biblical criticism. But when it comes to many of the other features of and historical thinking in Jewish modernity, an emphasis on historical change, an emphasis on the connection between Jewish and non-Jewish history, an emphasis on the centrality of context. Um, that's there in Mendelssohn. Uh, Mendelssohn, I think, um, as I suggest in the book, is in many ways the founder of modern Jewish historical thought, and modern Jewish historical consciousness. I don't quite want to go in the direction of, um, the full direction of Funkenstein. He, um, I mean, he, his, his, his he, He's in many ways interested in discovering um, um, kind of antecedents for some of this in earlier thinkers, and also in some ways in minimizing the importance um, of historical consciousness to, let's say, your run-of-the-mill modern Jew. And I have mm-hmm. questions about both of those moves, but I also, but I certainly. Um, don 't want to go in the direction of saying that this is a nineteenth century development or even a kind of post mendelssohnian eighteenth century development. I think Mendelssohn is the founder of modern Jewish historical thinking interesting and how how then, given that he is the
0: founder of modern Jewish historical thinking, uh, does he develop and how does he deploy the ideas of ceremonial law and divine legislation, and how are those supported? Or how does he bring philosophical ideas to
1: support those ideas? So, yeah, so Mendelssohn, at the center of his account of Judaism, is his account of Jewish practice. And the language he often uses to talk about Jewish practice is um, the set of actions required by a ceremonial law. And he uses the term ceremonial law basically to refer to something like halacha, to the kind of norms associated with Jewish life traditionally, um, going back in different sorts of ways to both the Hebrew Bible and rabbinic literature um and for mendelssohn it's jewish practice it's the ceremonial law it's the set of required actions that um pl- serve as a kind of safeguard in the face of these kind of historical transformations that i that i talked about so mm-hmm. um for example one of the mendelssohn 's conclusions based on his philosophical context based on his philosophy of language, is that um, philosophical and scientific change is inevitable. Um, mendelssohn, in many ways, thinks that people in his own context have figured up quite a bit out philosophically. I think he has he 's pretty confident in many aspects of some of the most popular philosophical models in his own context, most notably the philosophy associated with the German thinkers Leibniz and Wolf. He has concerns mm-hmm. about some aspects of his, of their thought, but I think in many ways he sees himself as a Leibnizian like, or a Wolfian trying to kind of fix that system. Nevertheless, Mendelssohn um, is pretty skeptical of the idea that any philosophical system, even one that basically gets it right, is likely to endure all that long. He mm-hmm. sees... Um, in his own context, dramatic philosophical changes, a kind of rejection of medieval Aristotelian science, and then a kind of parade of different philosophical systems that emerged to replace medieval science, only to then be rejected in turn. Mendelssohn also develops, I argue, a philosophy of language, which basically leads to the conclusion that the kind of terms we use in philosophy and in science are so obscure that even if they get things right, um, they're going to people are going to stop understanding exactly what they mean and then people are going to start rejecting those terms and rejecting the relevant systems. So Mendelssohn, because of his own philosophical context, is pretty skeptical um, that there's likely to be any long-term kind of epistemological stability when it comes to how we understand philosophy, how we understand science, how we understand the basic building blocks of Mm -hmm. reality. And then his notion of ceremonial law becomes part of his way of handling this. So for Mendelssohn, the Part of the genius of Jewish law, it's not a claim without problems, but for Mendelssohn, part of the genius of Jewish law is that it places a set of required actions that lead us to contemplate God at the center of Jewish life, rather than, say, a set of sentences about God. Well,
0: this was the next thing I wanted to ask you about, because it seems like there might be a tension between his claim, you know, that action should be privileged over fixed verbal formulas, between that and Jewish liturgy. How does he address
1: that problem? Yeah, so I, t- I talk about this a bit in the book, and the short version is he doesn't. Um, so the, the, the basic Mendelssohnian picture here is, look, there are different ways religious communities can structure themselves. They could place fixed verbal formulas, kind of creedal statements at the center of his life, right? So there are important things we need to know about God, um, and we're going to come up with sentences that express those um, things we need to know about God, things we need to know about the soul. Then we're going to require everyone to affirm those sentences. This is the basic model of a of a creed um, and, uh, Mendelssohn thinks that's a deeply problematic model in light of this ongoing philosophical change. The problem is any words we come up with at one point in history might be rendered um, deeply problematic if a philosophical system emerges that challenges those words, and so we're going to be put in this um, and, uh, kind of, um, deeply painful position, a position of this anguish choice between holding on to our community's words that stand at the center of their life and adopting the philosophical and scientific ideas that we think, um, basically right. So Middleton Mm -hmm. thinks that model of creeds is basically a disastrous model. And instead, Mm -hmm. the model he wants is this model of law, where what we're going to have are these required actions that lead us to think about God, but don't really require that we affirm any particular words. And what what that's going to do is going to kind of open up the space for a constant reimagining of our religious commitments as new scientific models emerge and as new philosophical models emerge, rather than feeling like we owe fidelity to now outdated phrases, we can simply um, continue to perform our required actions and then reimagine God in light of the best science and philosophy to which we have access.
0: And this may be why the idea of the Mishkan became useful to him, the tabernacle, which is so interesting. Uh, This was not a part of his work that I was terribly familiar with. And and I'm sorry that I just interrupted you. I want you to be able to complete your thought, but I'm I'm hoping you can also address... Why he fixed on the tabernacle is so important a guide to considerations of Jewish felicity.
1: yeah, so yeah, you should certainly not apologize for interrupting me. I <laughs> um, as is clear from this conversation, and friend, to anyone who knows me, I tend to ramble, especially when it comes to Mendelssohn, so yeah. please, please interrupt me um okay. let me let me just finish the one point about. Um, the tension with liturgy that you mentioned, and then I'll turn to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle, um, if mm-hmm. that seems fair. Um, Absolutely. So, so, so th- this basic model is, right, we're going to follow these laws, and therefore we're going to be able to constantly reimagine our commitments, because there aren't specific words we have to affirm. The problem, and I, and I, and I talk about this a little in the book, is that um, at least when it comes to Jewish practice one of the relevant practices, at least traditionally, certainly in Mendelssohn's context, is the recitation of fixed words, a fixed liturgy. Um, And Mendelssohn, as far as I know, never really comes to grips with the possibility that even in the absence of creedal formulas, even in the absence of a moment where there's a kind of officially enforced creed that Jews have to affirm, he doesn't really come to grips with the possibility that even the fi- a fixed liturgy could inhibit this process of philosophical imagining. I speculate in mm-hmm. the book about how he might have tried to come to grips with that. I think he may have resources in his thought, but 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 he never does. And I think this is a. Um, another feature of Mendelssohn, I, I think there's a lot that's philosophically useful in Mendelssohn. And when I talked about this in a book. I think he's a really useful theorist when it comes to topics like the relationship between um, um, belief and practice or the way traditions develop. But but I think there are significant blind spots in his thought as well. And and this is one of them um, mm-hmm. in terms of you mentioned the Mishkan, the tabernacle. So that yeah. that is um, um That ends up being, I mean, somewhat surprisingly, the locus at which Mendelssohn develops the theory of Jewish politics to which I alluded earlier. So Mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, Mendelssohn makes this claim uh, hinted at in the German writings and then developed more fully in the Hebrew writings that Jewish practice promotes the well-being of the state. And his his basic claim here is that Jewish practice leads people to reflect again and again about God and that this reflection about God actually has ethical and political consequences. It. Forms us into the sorts of people who are constantly thinking about the ethical implications of our actions, and more importantly for Mendelssohn, into the kind of people who actually have certain sorts of desires um, who yearn to promote the good and Mendelssohn thinks that that kind of person, a person who has become disposed to constantly reflect on the status of his or her actions and to constantly um, yearn to promote the good. That's the kind of citizen we want. We want a citizen who's going to be so attentive to the status of the actions going on around her um, that she actually takes an interest in the developments in her society and is attentive to any signs of civic strife, corruption, um, and can try to redirect societal change in productive ways. And then this makes this claim at the end of his Hebrew commentary in the book of Exodus, uh, his Hebrew commentary... Um, the Torah is known as the Buur, or the Elucidation, and he concludes his bureau on Exodus with a long and fascinating digression, um, which has basically gone unnoticed in the scholarship on, on the Mishkan, on the tabernacle, on this portable sanctuary that in the Bible the Israelites are commanded to build um, after leaving Egypt. And Mendelssohn, mm-hmm. I argue, uses his discussion of... The tabernacle um, as a kind of platform for making this claim. He makes the claim that in the ancient Israelite polity, um, that that initial task of building the tabernacle set this process of reflecting on God and then reflecting on the good and acquiring desires. It um, set it in motion. Right. The idea here is that the tabernacle was this communal project um, that linked kind of ordinary everyday economic activities to reflection on God, and it therefore led uh, the ancient Israelites and then the Jews to see all activities as somehow being related to God, and this gets that process of reflecting on God up and running, and then gets that process of reflecting on ethics up and running, and mm-hmm, gets that process mm-hmm. of firing desires. Um, and then I argue he makes the case that what the tabernacle once aco- accomplished, Jewish law still accomplishes. Jewish law is now the training program that forms Jews into these productive citizens. As to why he turns to the tabernacle. Um, Yeah, it's a great question because it's not the kind of move I think we would make today. Few of us would write a work of political philosophy and say, okay, my model for um, engaged citizenship is going to be a biblically described portable sanctuary that falls into um, into disuse once a centralized location of worship is built in Jerusalem. That's not a standard move in political philosophy today. <laughs> uh, I think Mendelssohn has a series of reasons for making that move. Um, some of that has to do with his historical context. So many of his non-Jewish contemporaries look back to antiquity either to Rome or to Greece, or in some cases to the ancient Hebrew Republic, um, to provide models of kind of engaged citizenship. And I think Mm -hmm. this is Mendelssohn's version of that. I think Mendelssohn also finds the biblical narrative itself to be one that is conducive to this. I mean, the biblical narrative is one where um, the entire community is described as contributing to the creation of the tabernacle. And then at some point, they um, start contributing so much material that they kind of step back and say, um, oh, my God. I mean, they don't quite say, oh, my God, but uh, that's, um, uh, you know, we need to we need to kind of step back and rethink how these contributions and how this production process is going to work. And that stepping back process is really important. To Mendelssohn too. I th- and- I think so. I think Mendelssohn. He never tells us why he turns to the tabernacle, but I but I suggest in the book briefly that he actually may see resonances between that moment in the in Exodus where so much is being contributed that the, that the kind of Israelites um, step back a bit um, and the kind of process of civic engagement he imagines where we're going to be so attentive to our. our kind of communal context that we're going to be able to adjust communal kind of political and economic and aesthetic practice um, to address problems. I I suspect Mendelssohn sees a kind of resonance in the biblical narrative to the kind of claims he wants to make, even though, of course, I mean, in in his reading of the Mishkan goes well beyond anything in the text. I don't mean to give the Mm impression that Mm -hmm. Mendelssohn's is a plain sense reading of the Mishkan. Um, Mendelssohn, I think, is engaged in this philosophically and politically creative rereading of a text based on hints and allusions and themes that are already there in that text.
0: What do you come away claiming was the defining theme behind Mendelssohn's diverse works? And and how does your method of historical reconstruction help you develop that claim?
1: Yeah. So I think my my central claim about the um, defining theme. Um, you know, I, I, I try to avoid saying that there is only one defining theme. Generally, in the mm-hmm. book, the way I present it is that history is one of the central defining themes. Um, you know, recent scholarship has tended to emphasize Mendelssohn's interest in language, and I think that's absolutely there. So I certainly wouldn't want to claim that Mendelssohn is only interested in history. But I do end up arguing that it's a concern with history. It's a concern With historical change and historical knowledge, that is one of the central unifying themes across his diverse writings. Um, Again, Mm -hmm. again, even the claims, uh, even some of his most famous claims that seem to be claims about language, for example, I argue are also claims about history. Nelson famously presents Jewish practice as um, uh, a way to resist idolatry, right? Rather than focusing on words and describing um, uh, so much significance to words that we, in effect, are worshiping them. Jewish practice is a series of ephemeral actions that we can never worship because they disappear as soon as we perform them. Um, Mm -hmm. That's certainly a claim about language, but I also argue that that's a claim about history because Mendelssohn doesn't think idolatry just happens all of a sudden. He thinks it itself is the result of a long historical process that he can chart. So in many ways, the the claim I make is that Mendelssohn has this... um, has this has a concern with history that is one of the central unifying features. Now, methodologically, in terms of what that means, um, you know, in many ways, and this is going to sound a little old-fashioned, um, I make I I think that my reading of Mendelssohn just emerges from a close reading of his texts in their historical context. I don't mm-hmm. have any special way of reading him. I simply try to engage his text and attend to. Um, the uh, historical developments with which we know he was familiar. My my father is an English professor. My my great rebellion in high school was to study religious philosophy, <laughs> epic literature. It's kind of a pathetic rebellion. Um, but in many ways, like my father, I, I like to read texts closely. Um, and what I think this historic, what the, what I think this method of close reading in historical context allows me to do is then also kind of go beyond that close reading and speculate on Mendelssohn's contemporary relevance. So part of what I hope this close reading does is it frees us from any preconceived notions about what Mendelssohn must be allowed and allows him to surprise us. And I and I conclude Mm -hmm. the book by trying to say, okay, given that we've now been surprised by what Mendelssohn has to say, what are the substantive implications for us today? What are the debates in our own historical context, in our own philosophical context to which Mendelssohn matters? And I spend a while at the end of the book thinking about um, you know debates about the relationship belief, between belief and practice, debates about the mm-hmm. way traditions develop, debates about the role of religion in society, to which Mendelssohn might be relevant. I, I don't think Mendelssohn gets everything right. I've already talked about some ways in which Mendelssohn has blind spots, but I do think there are Mendelssohnian arguments that can help advance contemporary conversations in religious studies, and Jewish studies, and in philosophy.
0: And how is this going to uh, influence the direction of your future work? And what what is next for you?
1: So the two of the things that I enjoyed in working with Mendelssohn and and probably have become painfully clear in this conversation that I enjoyed about working about <laughs> Mendelssohn are um, kind of working with neglected Hebrew philosophical material and mm-hmm. working on thinkers interested in history. And that constellation of factors has led me to engage. Um, uh, another kind of major figure in modern Jewish thought, and, and, and a figure who in many ways has suffered from deep neglect, and that's um, it's a figure named Nachman Krachmal. Um, mm-hmm. Born in 1785, dies in 1840, um, lives in what's now uh, Ukraine, um, in many ways is Eastern Europe's leading Jewish philosopher, and, and he's a thinker who um, has gone Almost completely unstudied recently in north america he's more he's a little more studied in Israel and in Europe, but in north America you know he's in he's cited in every history of Jewish thought but really in the last thirty years there's been essentially one English language book on him um, and and he is someone who wrote in Hebrew he wrote one text which was Deeply unfinished when he died, a book called The Guide of the Perplexed mm-hmm. of the Time. Um, and I mean, it's unfinished not just in the sense that there were a few copy edits, you know, it's unfinished in the <laughs> sense that we don't know the order of the chapters, and many chapters were not written. Um, wow. and it's a book deeply interested in history. is interested in historicism, in the philosopher Hegel. In biblical criticism, um, and one and my my next project is an attempt to recover Krochmal for uh, religious studies and Jewish studies today, and to do something with Krochmal similar to what I've done with Mendelssohn, to so both we'll try to give an account of what he's up to philosophically in his own context, and then try to think about what resources he offers us today in terms of our own philosophical and conceptual and political concerns.
0: Well, that will I'm sure be an interesting book, and I hope we get a chance to. Uh, talk about that one as well. I want to thank you for joining me today. My guest has been Professor Elias Sachs, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies and Religious Studies at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and we've been talking about his book, Moses Mendelssohn's Living Script, Philosophy, Practice, History, Judaism, uh, published this year by Indiana University Press. Professor Sachs, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure.